Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And this podcast, or uh, some people call us an oddcast, is actually not designed for most people. You see, I believe that uh, the people who make the biggest difference in life, in business, and in marketing are the ones that have the courage to be different, not better. They're the people who are focused on the exponential, not the incremental. And so on this oddcast, we feature real conversations, not overproduced or highly edited interviews that are purpose-built to inspire you to follow your different. On this episode, a riveting, insightful conversation about marketing strategies and approaches for startups with my dear friend, Viviana Fega. And I've known Viv for uh, more years than I'd like to talk about. Um, and today she is responsible for marketing at Emergence Capital. And um, Emergence has invested in companies that have created over $150 billion in new value as measured by market cap. Companies like Salesforce.com and Zoom Communications. And by the way, as a side note, if you haven't heard the episode uh, of uh, Follow Your Different with Eric Yuan, the founder of Zoom Communications, it's episode 103. Check that out. It's fantastic. Eric is an inspiring entrepreneur. And um, Viv has amazing experience because she's worked both on the startup and VC side. You see, she was responsible for marketing at Yammer, who was one of the pioneers in the enterprise social space. And she had senior marketing roles in other key places like Salesforce and Microsoft. And also, I want you to know that I've done business with Viv and continue to with her and her firm, Emergence Capital, because I think she's awesome and I think they're doing great work. So if you care about building legendary companies, categories, and brands, I think you're going to love this conversation. And pay special attention to the part where Viv talks about what to do when competitors rip you off. Uh, we'd love it if you go to lockhead.com and check out the show notes and subscribe to our newsletter, The Difference. We're sponsored by our good friends at Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business today at netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. And I'd also like to invite you to uh, be with me in San Francisco on November 18th, 2019 for Hypergrowth. It's one of the world's fastest growing events for modern business leaders. And um, I'll be there with my friend, the legendary Carrie Palin, who's the CMO of Splunk. And we'd love to see you there. Go to hypergrowth.com and use promo code legendary at the checkout to get tickets for just 99 bucks. That's hypergrowth.com, promo code legendary. All right. Um, I think we're ready to go uh, now. Hey, ho, <laughs> let's go. Trying to save the world of marketing. <laughs> what does it need to be saved from? Oh, you know, from founders and entrepreneurs who don't believe in it, who don't believe in the art. So do you think, I, I remember hearing this years ago from a uh, founder CEO who will, who will remain nameless, um, who said to me, we make shit, we sell shit, and everything else is bullshit. Is that still sure. where a lot of people are? Unfortunately, I would think so. I think it's 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 hard when you're overwhelmed with information and data today, right? You feel so I mean, you you have to think about 
the fact that people feel like they're always being pinged via email, they get a ton of spam, and you're a founder and you're an entrepreneur and you're building a company. You just got, you know, we invest quite early. So you just raised your Series A and we just gave you, you know, between you know, five and $15 million. And you're thinking, where do I want to spend my money? Well, I want to spend all of my money on building the product. And, you know, I don't know who to hire or why I should hire a marketer. And it just seems like one big, massive waste. So that's, you know, those, that's what I deal with. Uh, and those are the kind of questions that I get every day, which is just, why should I hire a head of marketing? What's the point? So it's funny that we're having this right off the top. Because I get into all kinds of these conversations. And here's one that I've been saying to technical founders uh, lately that seems to land more effectively than some of the things I've said historically. The perception of your product is your product. So what you're creating is the perception of a product and the, and the, and the problem it solves and the value excuse me, the value associated with solving that problem. That's what you're doing, right? Because if people don't uh, have a high opinion of your carbodingulator and the solving the problem that the carbodingulator solves, they're not going to give a shit about your carbodingulator is no matter how beautiful and awesome you think it is, right? That's right. So the aha is the product is actually the perception of the product. And the actual product is part of creating the perception for sure. It's a huge part. It's incredibly important. In no way, shape, or form is it not important. But unto itself, it may not create the perception that you want. Yeah, it's funny. I had a, a CEO that I'm coaching right now who actually has the best product in the market. It's a new category and they've, they've been working on it and it's been, you know, it, it, it leaps and bounds is better than the competition, but the competition created the category. They didn't, they knew they didn't have the best product and they knew they weren't going to win there in a side by side, you know, you know, Pepsi Coke challenge. And this company that I'm advising is really frustrated. The CEO is really frustrated. And he says, look, we're so much better than them. I just don't get it. Why does everyone go to the competitor? Why are they beating us? And it's fascinating when you have to explain to him, the best product doesn't always win. And there are plenty of cases where it does, right? And, it, and the, you know, the company just sort of takes off without great marketing. We've seen that. But for the most part, in a competitive market, if you don't define the category, if you don't create it, you're going, you're going to really struggle because now you're going to look like you're playing catch up. Yes. And I find, I'm curious if you find this, a lot of people conflate category creation and category design with being the first mover. And so you hear stuff like, oh, well, you know, MySpace was the first and Facebook beat them and therefore your whole thing is bullshit, right? It's like, okay, I get that. But conflating those two things is actually uh, a bad idea. And here's why. It's not about who has the first product in the market. It's about who's the first company to educate the market about the problem or the idea or the opportunity, depending on how you want to think about it, 
And as a result, the value of having a product or a service um, to solve that problem, right? A quote unquote solution. And it's, um, it's the first company to get their point of view about what that is, that framing of that whole thing, the tip at scale that wins. So it's not about, you know, was MySpace first? GeoCities was before MySpace and, and on and on and on, right? I mean, it's the first company who at scale teaches the world to think about something in exactly the way they want. And as a result, cause a demarcation point in thinking, which creates a demarcation point ultimately in actions and behaviors and purchasing and usage, right? Absolutely. Why do people conflate that so much, Viv? You know, I honestly don't know. I think because people just assume that the best product always wins. But one interesting conversation that I have a lot uh, right now is that, so let's say you're in a two horse race in a new category and that's happened. Your competitor has created the category, has set the stage, has defined the market and everybody thinks, well, that's what I need. What do you do, right? How do you get out of that out of that situation. This is a really interesting dance. So there's one company that I've been spending quite a bit of time with, a different portfolio company. And they were at this neck and neck race. It's been about two years since I started working with them since I first started. And they had to create... So they said, how are we, we going to catch up if we just copy their messaging, we're going to look the same. And I said, look, you can't look the same now. Now you have to change the game. You have to redefine the whole market. And it's going to be really painful at first because people are going to initially say, I want that shiny object. Those other guys defined it. I really want to be them. That's what I want. And so my response to the company I'm advising is, you have to change the game, come up with completely new messaging, and you have to go so hard at winning that message from your press releases, from your website, from your sales collateral, from every single piece of content that is external facing has to say, you know, speak this new language. And they're winning now. So it's taken some time and it was a really painful first six months, but they have started to pull away because they redefined a market in a way that actually made sense um, and was the right way to do it. And we were just better at it. So it took time. So I'm curious, you know, in my mind, the the flip you got them to was to shift from thinking the argument we're going to have is a better one. And of course, the challenge with better is when when we say we're better than them, the, 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 what's left in the mind of the listener is the them, not the us. <laughs> That's right? right. When Pepsi says we're better than Coke, what are we left thinking about? Coke. <laughs> so, yeah. But they all, but so many fall into this trap. And so my question, Viv, is how did you get them to shift their thinking from playing a comparison better game? to redefining the category and playing what, you know, you might think of as a different game. How did you get this company of yours to, I mean, that's a big leap. And I've been in a million <laughs> discussions. I want to know how you did it. It's, it's interesting. Uh, the competitor, both the CEOs of these companies were really, really different. And so interestingly enough, the messaging oftentimes aligns with who the CEO is. And, I pushed our CEO to say, look, do you think you are like this person? Do you think you're building this company? And he said, no, I don't. But they've, you know, they're ahead of us right now and they're winning. And I said, okay, let's find who you are, why you exist, 
why you're different and crystallize those points so clearly that every single person you interact with that you talk to knows them. And so when, when we started retraining everybody and, you know, really getting the whole company around this new ethos, it was much easier to get the market to, to agree and to align with the new messaging. And it just aligned with the CEO. So it was much more natural for him. He was so much more comfortable talking about his company and why it was different versus the other guys. Uh, and so it ended up working. It really has worked in there just, again, it took a year and a half, but it, it's been an all out war. And just now are we really seeing those sort of early signs that we're, we're peeling away. It's great. And another, well, and congratulations. I mean, I know how hard that is. And I'll tell you, I would say to you, um, before my first book, Play Bigger, came out, my batting average was probably 200, 250 at best. I mean, eight out of the 10 times, I would fail in getting this stuff to stick or even get out of the shoot because of the we make shit and we sell shit. And, 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 and even more than that, the belief that you talked about, the fundamental belief, particularly from an engineering-led company, the best Carbodingulator carries the day, right? <laughs> the algorithm. Um, and so the other question I have for you is, if you said it took a year and a half, a year and a half in our industry can feel like a lifetime. How did you get them to stick to it? A lot of patience. And I think, you know, what was nice is that, uh, you know, I really embedded myself. And so they, they just had to believe. Like I always say, the best CEOs will the universe into being. Truly, truly. If you look at the best CEOs, they're told every day they're never going to make it. And so this CEO, frankly, he's really impressive and he just willed the universe into being. He just stuck with it. And he just did a great job. And I don't, I think I'm with you there. I've definitely had those other conversations with CEOs where I've tried to do this and it hasn't landed, right? I mean, you're right. I mean, the, bat, the batting average is, is tough. Um, but in general, I felt like he has that unique quality and he was also really willing to take advice. Another thing I look for when I work with CEOs is, are they willing to listen? Because sometimes they're just not willing to listen, right? And it's funny hearing you talk about the, the analogy you've been using about the, I'm not going to pronounce it correctly, but the carbon dingulator, right? Like, so when I first met with, I don't, you know, I don't know if you know David Sachs, but I'm sure you do. He's great. Yeah, yeah. I think he's been on your on show. Yeah. Yeah. So my old boss for many, many years, he's fantastic. And the first time I met him when I was debating going to Yammer, he said to me, you know, I'm told I need to hire you, but I don't really know why. You know, he came from PayPal, everything is viral, my products just sell themselves. So tell me, why do I need to hire you? And I told him why, you know, why marketing matters. And he just said, okay, great, I want to hire you. And I said, you know what, I don't really want to work for you <laughs> because I don't know if you believe in it. And so I turned him down twice and then I eventually took the job. But um, so it's a, it's a, he's just a, he's definitely one of those CEOs who believes that the product sells itself, but I think he's evolved his thinking since then. So uh, there's a lot, there's a lot to pop the hood on here. You turned down Saks twice. That's right. So just from a career perspective, if, if it would be easy for one to say, um, so, okay, Saks, very successful guy, like A plus, right? Uh, surrounded by A-plus people, incredible outcomes. Uh, at the time, Yammer was doing quite well, if I remember when, when you were talking to them. Very well. Lots of user growth, little in the name of ARR. Yeah. 
I mean, not to get too personal, but I'm sure he wasn't, you know, throwing uh, a minor amount of economic incentive at you. I'm sure he was, he had sharpened his pencil, right? It wasn't a shitty offer. No, it was a great offer, actually. Yeah. And so on its face, you say, uh, and and you were I don't, uh, in the f- first quarter of your career at the time. Would that yeah, be? Yeah, I know. I was young. I was young, very yeah. early. Okay. Yeah long time ago. So you just look at that and you go, Hey, Viv, uh, legendarily successful entrepreneur, super plugged in, super amazing, fascinating guy, amazing company, kicking ass, uh, great economics. You're fairly young in your career. You're going to be working, you know, in this incredible, are you mental? (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, so where do you get the gumption, uh, because I, I think there's a lot of people who would think you were crazy to turn him down more than once. Yeah, no, I did too. It, it was a hard, it was hard to turn him down, but um, I mean, obviously he convinced me, uh, but he was, you know, just, I wanted to work for a CEO who understood the value of marketing. And you know, after that conversation, I wasn't so sure, but a lot of my old, you know, a bunch of the folks that I'd worked with at Salesforce had gone there and they said, look, it's our job to convince him that, you know, sales and marketing matter. And, and we did, we did. It was a ton of fun. Well, I think it's very interesting uh, career um, insight from you. It's been mine too. Um, but you don't hear a lot of people having, you know, the, uh, let me call it fortitude to, to, to do that, right? Um, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating move. And I think it's also, it's, it's a critical lesson for all CMOs or potential CMOs, which is, Hey, there's, there's no way any of this gets done in any kind of meaningful way, unless the CEO is a thousand percent. Yep. And I always say that, and this is advice I give to CMOs who call me and ask me, you know, should I take this job? I get those calls all the time. And I always say, you know, if you can't you have to go to dinner with them and you have to ask yourself, do you really like this person? Because at the end of the day, being CMO requires more trust than any other relationship in the C-suite because they're relying on you to, in a sense, be their number two and tell the company's story. So if they don't trust you, it's not going to work fundamentally. So do you feel like you can get to a point if you have kids where you can talk about you know, kids going to Disneyland, which is actually a conversation I had with Zach's probably six months ago, right? So you have to get to that level of, you have to feel like you can get to that level of friendship. And figuring out whether or not the, the CEO believes in marketing is actually quite complicated and nuanced because I think every CEO says, yeah, yeah, I believe in marketing. I want my brand everywhere. But then you have to really take a step back and, and unpack that and figure out, well, what does marketing mean to you, CEO? And, and see if it aligns with you. It's interesting. You're on this point. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think in my experience as a CMO, now this is just me, when the relationship was working, it would be unlikely that if we were both in town, we spoke every day, certainly every other day. Traveling, you know, we could go a week or two without talking. But for the most part, there was a lot of communication and two weeks without talking would be a long period of time. Even traveling, that would be a pretty extraordinary. So fairly regular communication. And if not actually talking, talking, digital, email, whatever type communication, almost daily, if not daily. 
for that reason. And one of the questions I always ask, and this only pertains to public companies, but it tells me immediately the answer to the question you're on, which is, um, do you write the CEO's earnings script? Are you in the room for, you know, two to four days before earnings doing all that work in there with the CFO and the head of IR and of course the CEO and, you know, and maybe your lead comms person and maybe the lead, <clears throat> excuse me, IR type comms person. You know, there's normally at a public company, as you well know, there's a group of people, these things just don't happen, right? And um, I'm always stunned to find out CMO says, no, I'm not in that room. That is stunning. And it does speak volumes. You have to be in that room. I mean, the earnings call is, I mean, it's, it's many things, but it's also a marketing opportunity, right? It's an opportunity to tell your story. And so if you're not in that room, you're leaving it to someone else. And I think it's, it's actually, I never thought about it that way, but that is so true. If you're not speaking to your CEO every day or every other day, something's not right. Something. Something's not working in that relationship. And, and about all sorts of things. Like one of my favorite things to do with the CEOs that I really clicked with was we got into a groove of sharing customer stories. Because we, it, it, I've only ever been a very customer-facing, overly traveling CMO, right? So I'm, I'm on the road half the time as a CMO. And so with the, the two CEOs I worked the best with in, in the CMO job, I got into this fun habit of, I would hear something, I would learn something, a salesperson would do a cool thing, or even with an analyst, you know, you talk to an interesting analyst, whatever it is, when you're out learning about customers, our products, your goal, you hear this thing about a competitor, whatever it is, you're learning shit every day if you're deeply engaged in the business, and particularly if you're super market-facing, right? So that in of itself was an excuse to trade a paragraph on, hey, I heard this thing today. Never oh, absolutely. Strategic shit you might be working on in addition to that. Uh, yeah, the million other things that you're working on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so um, what advice would you give a, a CMO who says, maybe, you know, maybe I'm new in the, the seat. Maybe I've just gotten promoted or maybe I just got hired. I'm, 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 I'm where you were in your career at that point, which I'm sure you remember well. I know I remember it well. Uh, if if you were that if you were talking to, to that Viv or that that Lockhead back in the day, if I was you were advising me coming into my first role, um, what would be the kinds of things you would want me to know as I step into that seat, and particularly around building the CEO relationship? Oh my gosh, so many things, so much to learn. I think first and foremost, you have to figure out what type of CMO you are. If you're coming into a company. Are you replacing a CMO or are you the first time CMO? Because those tend to be very different scenarios, right? If you're the first time CMO, you get to build your team from scratch. You have a lot to prove, meaning proving the value of being the CMO. But in a sense, it's a little bit easier because you get to hire your team. Hopefully you have a network. You get to build your own data stack. It's honestly so much easier than, than coming in at number two right? Replacing a CMO. When you replace the CMO, you come in with, you can come with a lot of baggage. Sometimes you don't, you have a team that might be fractured. Perhaps they haven't been happy with the leadership that's been in place. Typically they're not respected by the CEO. So you have to figure out what type of environment you're walking into and then change your leadership, leadership style based on 
on which one you come in. I think for the former, if you're coming in and you're you know, brand new CMO and there's no one's been in that seat before, you tend to come in with quite a bit of trust and you can lead and you can make some pretty big decisions out of the gate. If you come in the latter and you're replacing a CMO, you have to listen. You really have to spend some time listening to come up with the right strategy and then be able to lead and frankly, try to bring this team together. And then you have to make some important decisions around who's going to stay and who's going to go. So that I would say is very, very important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I, I couldn't agree more that um, I took over two and started one. Um, and the starting of the one was way easier than the taking over of the two. Oh man. Yeah. I've taken over a lot of teams. So yes, it's, it's much easier. Uh, the other thing I always say is that uh, marketers fall in, in what I call four different superpowers. I wrote an article on it. Um, but CEOs will always ask me, you know, what kind of marketer should I look for? And so I found that there's basically four core superpowers they fall into. And I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, right? Uh, so at a high level, it's, you know, corporate marketing, sort of messaging and positioning product marketing, creative and brand, and then performance marketing. And then if you bubble that up, marketers tend to fall into either the sort of performance marketing demand gen side, or they fall into the product marketing, uh, sort of corporate marketing messaging side. And you have to decide, the company has to figure out, you know, what's the best CMO right now? If you're creating a new category, you probably want someone who's stronger at the product marketing side. And if you're a you know more of a freemium business, if you have an established category, you might want someone who's stronger at demand gen and performance marketing. So you have to ask yourself as a CMO, where do I fall? Because everybody has a major and a minor. You can't be great at everything. And then you have to figure out what does the company need and what does the CEO need? Because those two things may not be aligned. Yeah, where the CEO's strengths and weaknesses are matter a lot in this discussion, right? Um, Absolutely. So I want you just, there's a ton to drill into here. Uh, the first one that popped to me though, you said if there's a category uh, creation, category design requirement, you would tend to a product marketing oriented CMO. I'm curious as to why you say that. Because product marketers initially in their career should park themselves with product, right? So in a sense, they're embedded with that team. And they understand exactly what product and end are doing to build this product. And so in a sense, they're just an extension of that team. And they're figuring out how to articulate everything that product and end are, are building such that the market will want that product, right? So they're really kind of an extension of that team. They're great communicators. They're great storytellers. They're great writers. And they can take code and turn it into something really beautiful. That's sort of that magic piece. Um, and I think demand gen performance marketers are worth their weight in gold if you have a freemium viral business or one that frankly, you know, especially in the SMB space, you have to be very quantitatively driven because you know, you're, you're acquiring many more customers. And so you have to be much more articulate around the CAC, right? The cost to acquire customers and how to build that. So it's just very different skill sets. Uh, and that's where I see that CMO revolving door. There's just a misalignment around what the company needs and the skill set of the CMO that's coming in. Yeah. And so, God, there's so much goodness here. The other thing on the product marketer as category designer, 
So the obvious disadvantage is the product marketer could fall into the fastest, bestest, cheapest, scale, scaliest, securiest uh, carboning <laughs> wins. You know, so they could fall into because a lot of product product marketers have, if they're not engineers, although many of them are, they have a engineering bent to them. Um, that's the obvious potential disadvantage. Th- that said, you and I have both worked with legendary people who come from this place. There's a lot of incredible CEOs that come from product marketing. And to your point, I think the greatest product marketers, what they're really doing is they're figuring out uh, strategically what we should build that will make the biggest difference in the market, that's the most unique, that will break and take the most ground, and that will deliver the most value against the most important issues and or problems. So helping engineering to sort of chart the course, mm-hmm. not that engineering isn't a big part of it. Engineering should be a massive part of it, but that's a big part of the relationship, right? And then the other one is once we agree on what those things are from a product, what should we do perspective, then translate that in into the world such that the world gets why the shit we're building solves and deals with important stuff and is strategic and valuable and worthy of investment in immediately and so forth. And so uh, it's an interesting insight that the category designer likely would come from product marketing. Oh, yes. That's, that tends to be what I've seen is that those folks who are, you know, frankly, I think you said it, you articulated it really well, which is that in a sense, they're engineers, but they have this gift where if they're good product marketers, where they're able to take that and translate it to the market. And then you're right, they're meeting with the customers. So they're able to come back to engineering and say, hey, Eng, hey, product, you said you're going to build this roadmap, but I think you should be building this other thing. The other thing I'd say is, I would say in general, legendary marketers are at least good, if not great at sales. and. To your point on the product marketing, at least in the tech industry, it might be different in some other spaces, but in the world that you and I live for the most part, um, product marketers tend to be more more customer facing than by way of example, corporate marketing or certainly PR or comms. Um, And even demand gen might be doing sort of research analytically, analytically stuff, but they're not standing up in front of customers pitching or giving the product vision pitch or dealing with analysts or those sorts of things. And so because of that uh, customer facing part, um, it tends to, they tend to get good at sales, even though they may not be asking for the order. You have to be a great presenter. You have to be a great communicator. You're going to stand up at the user conference. Uh, You know, depending on the size of the company, you're probably doing some press briefings and analyst briefings and on a very regular basis. So if you're not good in front of people and persuasive with an argument about why this shit matters, probably not going to be successful as a product marketer. Yeah, it's funny enough, I was a sales engineer before I became a product marketer. So I think you're absolutely right. And I loved it. I loved it. I just felt like I was selling to five companies and then I wanted to be able to tell a message to the world. And so that that was really the shift. But to be honest, the role wasn't that different. You were taking, you know, bits and bytes and translating it to customers in a much broader way. And it's interesting. I've seen legendary um, uh, SEs turn into product managers and then, you know, director or whatever, like end up running a product line. That's a path we see, right? I'm not, I'm, I don't know if I knew that about you, but I'm not surprised at all. Like, oh, Viv's good at selling. I hadn't noticed. 
<laughs> I was decent at it. I was good at it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Well, and to your point, category design or not, I think that you said it earlier, the CMO needs to be incredibly externally facing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you've got to be on the road. I think you said it best. It's always a problem when the CMO is just sitting behind their desk. And actually, you know, as you know, the CMO role has really changed. And so there's this tendency to want to live in reports now, right? Because you want to, you know, we're, we're all analyzing the business now on a daily basis, which has changed quite a bit. In the last 10 years, you're running your Domo report, you know, you're running your reports to figure out what's going on, lead flow. And you're, every Wednesday, I would sit with our CRO and we would course correct, right? And, and so it's become a very analytical role. And so you can lose sight of how important it is to just get out there and get your face in the place, as we used to always say at Salesforce, how important that was. But <laughs> get your face in the place. Uh, so it's That's good to talk great. to customers. Yep. What, what, um, what was that? Was it Carl's Jr.? If it doesn't get all over your face, if it doesn't get all over the place, it doesn't belong in your face. That was, <laughs> I don't know if I remember that one, but that's the great. Burger joint. I, don't, I may not have been them, but anyway, I don't know. You just triggered that in my head, but that's funny. You know, so here's the interesting thing. Um, I think, and I'm going to say this out loud to sort of hear what it, hear what it sounds like, but I think there's a chance Um we in marketing are beginning to um, over-focus on data and analytics. And I know that might sound obvious coming from a guy who's not, you know, never won an award for analytics. Um, I'm actually a huge fan of, of data. I, I'm very excited about what's going on. I think there's some very cool things in AI that's go they're going on in marketing. I, I'm, I'm not in any way a Luddite. I, want, I, I, I love the forward-leaning stuff. And... I also know this is about human beings. Um, and, and the way we get to know human beings is to be in the world with human beings. And you can't understand our business in France um, from San Mateo. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Humans do not like to be confused. They really don't. And it's that simple. And so when marketers forget what their, what their customers want or forget to spend time. And you know, the best marketers don't just talk to customers as we know this, they actually intuit. They can, they can know this is where the market is going and I'm just going to do it before anybody tells me I'm going to do it. This is the message I need. This is what I need to do. And they look like raving lunatics when they're doing it. But then they're able to really shift the whole market. Right. But I do agree with you. It's interesting. The last five years, you know, I'd get a lot of calls about various CMO roles. And the, you know, the search firm would say, we're looking for that demand gen. And you know, I, what was interesting is that I, I grew up in product marketing at Salesforce. And then when I went to Yammer, it was a viral freemium model. It sort of threw me off the deep end in terms of learning analytics in that world. We had one of the first, uh, you know, I think we'd built the first data analytics team in enterprise. I mean, we had some of these brilliant data scientists who would actually park themselves with us and really focused on growth. And it really threw me off that deep end because I had to learn it. And it was great. It was one of the best experiences that I ever had. But I'll say that, you, you know, I, I really think you have to, you have to spend at least 30% of your time, 20 to 30% of your time figuring out where is the market going and how am I going, you know, without any data because the data is not going to tell you where the market's going. It's just going to tell you how to course correct in the moment that you're in. 
I think it's such a massive insight. And I actually think the most exciting thing is um, the science of marketing continues to get better and better. And what used to be pure art is now having science add to it. You know, I recently saw this article that uh, Chase Bank has um, did a did a pilot with a AI copywriting company mm-hmm. over a fairly long period of time. And the net of it is there was a massive, like a material difference in uh, advertising effectiveness from the AI. And so they did a five-year deal with this AI headline writing, marketing, copywriting <laughs> company. That's like, scary. Who needs right? product marketers anymore? Wow. Well, it's just int- the line of sort of what's science and what's creative or strategic or whatever other s- sort of softer skill thing is, is you know, the water line is coming up. <laughs> yeah. But I oh, think what? understanding that, you know, particularly as somebody who lives more there for sure than on the data analytics side, I, I actually think that's cool. I think, I, I think being a Luddite is dumb. And I think trying to figure out how to use more science to focus on the higher value, creative, strategic, I think, you know, that's what we need to do. But at the same time, to echo your point, there's nothing like going on customer calls. Nothing like there's it. There's nothing like um, being interviewed on uh, a, a French, uh, you know, the French equivalent of CNBC and having to answer questions, you know, about the business. Uh, like you, you got to be able to handle yourself in the world, in the real world, right? And get to that magic place where you can not just feel the business, but feel the category. Like to your point, you know where the customers are, you know where the competitors are weak, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, it's it's so interesting to me that we're having this debate because I really do feel like the world has come back to wanting product marketing. I think I, I forgot to close this loop, but recruiters now when I get calls, I'll say, we're all looking for product marketers and category designers. So I do think that shift has, has really come a long way. And I always think the best CMOs actually get their house in order first. They get their data stack, they've got their marketing stack, they've got their various applications, they know exactly what's going on with the business. And that affords you the opportunity to do what we're talking about, which is just do crazy stuff. Because if you're not thinking of the most creative campaign or the most innovative way to get your product out there, and by the way, it might fail, right? So so what, what you have to do is when you're figuring out what the, that relationship with your CEO is say, can I spend 20% of my time just working on really creative things, right? Because I think most CMOs are miserable if they don't get to do that piece. So if you get your house in order, then you can, it gives you that right to spend the 20% of your time working on really innovative campaigns that are going to you know, basically redefine this category, redefine the market and help move that needle. And then you'll end up as a CMO being much happier because you'll feel fulfilled. I think all of us who are good CMOs need that creative outlet. And we get, I don't, I don't get it when I'm looking at numbers, frankly. Yes, I, I think that's very true. And I think a lot of us who end up in marketing are uh, frustrated or wannabe or wish we were artists of one kind <laughs> or creative, you know, whatever's musicians or painters or dancers or I don't know what, right? Uh, so it might, might not have been our first choice for some of us, right? Because we had that bent. So I get that sort of scratch the itch part. The other interesting thing I think that you're saying that I think is incredibly powerful that I think a lot of CMOs miss is if you show up to the e-staff meeting or the board meeting, 
and you want to have a strategic conversation about designing and dominating the category and what our point of view should be and what our brand should be and you know all the all this the other thing that I like right all the strategery and the sales force doesn't have any fucking leads no one's listening nope they are not listening they're right. going to laugh you out of the room you have to be able to put on a pair of pants and tuck your shirt in and walk in there and right you you don't you have to be a professional you have to handle the basics right you have to the trains have to run on time it may not be sexy it may not be your strong suit for some cmos it really is and that's that's a different conversation we can have but um, if the trains don't run on time, no one's going to hear a damn word you have to say about the category or the strategy or acquisition strategy or whatever else you want to talk about. Yeah, they're just going to shut their eyes and stop listening. So yeah, you have to get your house in order. Get it in order. Do a good job. Hit your numbers and then go do some, some fun stuff. Yeah, and the other part of this, which, you know, and I, I love dichotomies in life, Viv, you know. The other part of it is, if the trains run on time, everything's nice and tight, generally good people, very clear, well run, everybody wipes their, their, their bum, et cetera, et cetera. The sales force is relatively happy. The engineering organizations are, you know, you're doing the things, but that's it. You're not the company with the provocative point of view, designing or redesigning the category, setting the agenda, uh, uh, putting the, pro the competitors on the defense, but playing amazing air wars that, that builds attention for the, the category and the brand and gets people excited about learning about it, puts the competition, you know, where it needs to be and all that stuff while driving a massive amount of leads and demand. You got to do it all. You do. You got to do it all. You can't get lazy. It's very tempting to, to have built everything and then to sit there and say, well, gee, just as you described, everything is copacetic. Everything's great. And so I'm just going to take a back seat and, you know, keep the same message and let it run for two years. That doesn't work, right? You've got to change that message. You've got to keep testing new waters because trust me, if it's a good message, your competitors already copied it, right? And then I get this question often, well, you know, the competitor just copied everything I said. What am I supposed to do? And you have to make that dance there. But I think one, you dig in deep and you continue to own that message because it's yours. But then you need to launch sub messaging, right? You have, to, you have to continue to keep your brand fresh, whether you're going after a new customer, whether you're going after a new market, come up with new things that still align with that core because the second you give it up, you're probably going to lose, right? Now you've just ceded all that work to the competitor. And that's a big mistake I see companies make. Yes, a legendary category, and by definition, a legendary brand, is a story that unfolds over time. And so keeping it relevant, keep it, particularly in our industry, but I think it's true in, in most industries, keeping it incredibly forward-leaning, right? If, if you don't have a position on forward-leaning technology today and how that is relevant to your category and what that means to your customers and what that means to your product agenda and your technology agenda and where you're taking the company in, uh, you you don't have a um, uh, a category blueprint for where this thing's going over the next eight to ten years, and it, you know vision that you can point to, and then that maps to some kind of a product strategy that you're driving, and what that means from an ecosystem point of view, and all the things that are you know it's a big thing that you need to go get done to 
actually have a strategy for winning over an enduring period of time and then communicating to the world what that is and why it's important. But you got to get that shit done. Right, right. And you need lieutenants. And You know, it's interesting. I think a lot of CMOs go it alone. Even today, I still have that tendency to want to do everything on my own because I just, I want to work on the strategy, but I still want to, you know, be a part of all of the tactics. And so it can feel exhausting. So the uh, another thing that you have to do is find those lieutenants who you really trust, who are literally better at you than that core function. So I, I had this fantastic field marketing woman who I worked with for over 10 years. And she was phenomenal. She is a powerhouse and she's way better than I am at field marketing. But I had to set the tone and set the strategy, but I had her. I trusted her with everything when it came to that. Same thing with comms and PR. Same thing with product marketing, right? You need these lieutenants who are, frankly, better than you, right? So if you get hit by a bus, frankly, the the train is going to continue to move because you've built such a strong team. Yeah, I mean, I think it's critical. And I think the other thing that doesn't get talked about, the truth is a lot of these big C jobs, C-level jobs, they kind of require two in a box. And I've so, heard that before. Yeah. I mean, look, we had Subar Samian on that not, not that long ago. And the truth is we ran marketing together. There was no decision that I was going to make without talking to her. And there was like, I can't, I don't know that it ever happened, but where there was a decision that she didn't want to make that I said we're making. And frankly, you know, the org chart was upside down. I mean, I, I, there was like a break in the matrix. I have no idea how this happened. She's the single most effective executive I've ever even seen or heard of. So I like how this happened, I'll never know. But that's neither here nor there. The truth is we were two in the box and it was clear to everybody. And for the record, I did nothing to hide it. <laughs> everybody <laughs> knew who Sue was. It was like, watch as, you know, Sue drinks water and Christopher talks or... Christopher talks as Sue drinks water, however that's supposed to go, you know? And so the reality is to your point, lieutenants and, and partners, we, you know, particularly those of us who have great skills in some areas and zero skills. <laughs> yeah. You have to have that right hand lieutenant. That makes perfect sense. But you know what I love that you're saying is that you had no ego about it. I think one thing that CMOs struggle with is that they have this sort of ego thing. They don't, I think they're always so nervous because it's such a broad discipline and they, they can do like 90% of their job incredibly well, but 10% not well. And then they, they'll always feel like someone's calling them out on that 10%. So I think that's good advice to, you know, it's one thing to have your lieutenants for your core functional areas, but it's another thing to just have a right hand and such that this person can really make some of those key decisions. But I will tell you that most CMOs are insecure and they don't feel comfortable with that. Well, they're nuts. Um, just based on my experience and, and people, you know, Sue and I joked, uh, you know, we had a fun time reminiscing people used to call in marketing. They used to call us mom and dad. And in that context, they would try to play us off each other. Like they would literally go to one of us and ask a question, get an answer. And then if they didn't like it, go to the other one to see if they got a different answer. And we knew where our lines were. It was so clear. People would come to me and go, I don't know, ask Sue, right? They're like, oh, we, I, they would come to me, a budget was a great example. Sue ran all budgeting and planning. 
you don't need to know me for more than five seconds to know I'm not going anywhere near a spreadsheet. <laughs> so somebody would come to me and say, hey, you know, we got this, this thing or whatever, whatever and, you know, and I need another hundred grand to do my whatever, whatever. whatever. I say, are you out of your mind? What are you, why are you here? You got to go talk to Sue and Virginia. Virginia runs the budget. I have no idea. Go talk to them. We decided three months ago on what the strategic allocations are and they're off implementing the plan. I don't know. Right. And so my point in all of that is if you're going to, at least in my experience, if you're going to do this sort of two in a box partnership model, um, you have to commit to it. And there Mm -hmm. is no, there is no divide and conquer and people have to see that. And when you stand, you stand together. Um, and, 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 you know, to your point, um, if that's the situation you're in, it certainly was the one I was in. It was the greatest experience of my working life. My partnership with Subar Samian, the greatest partner I ever had period bar none. And so, um, you know, it maybe sounds strange, but yes, there's a vulnerability that comes to it, but the reality is the power of it. It's, it's way worth the vulnerability and who gives a shit. So people know you suck at some stuff. I don't care. (laughs) Get over yourself. I totally agree. I think that's good advice for CMOs though, to figure out what they're not great at and round themselves out and be okay with it. Be okay with it. Don't be insecure about it. Don't be afraid about it. Don't, you know, kind of own it because that's the way to really succeed. Amen. Hallelujah, sister. (laughs) Anything else you'd like to touch on, Viv? No, I mean, I don't think so. I think there's, we've talked a little, about a lot of the advice that I give folks. I mean, so much of it is nuanced. Each company is different. And even though we all think that we face the same challenges, every company is different, right? Whether you're launching a new category, whether you're in an existing one and you're trying to break out, whether you're selling to SMB or to large enterprise, it's, 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 it's a complex world out there. But I think I do, would love folks to take away the idea that um, you know, take advice where you can, but make your own decisions, right? And um, I think CMOs really do struggle with advice. So they should mean? be listening to you <laughs> well, thank more. Thank you. But what do you mean they struggle with advice? What do you? I'm curious about that. I think that just sort of what I talked about, this idea that they're a little bit insecure about some core areas because it's such a broad discipline. So they just have to be okay with taking advice from experts, learning, and then frankly, constantly innovating and changing themselves. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think there's an interesting, um, I'm not even sure what the right way to describe it is. On one hand, incredibly powerful to have mentors. Uh, I had some amazing mentors as a young young CMO. I have amazing mentors today. Um, and I read a lot, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a corny line, but the leaders or readers, it's kind of true. You know, I, did you, I mean, did you have a handful of books that meant a lot to you, particularly early on? Definitely. And I mean, you mentioned this in your play, a bigger book, your book is a great book. Um, It's one that I hand out to every new company that we invest in. uh, And I really, really do mean that. Uh, But the other, the other book I I read, and I know you, you kind of make fun of it, but I I loved the positioning about Rise and Jack Trap. I mean, that was sort of my, my, well, you, you talk about it in your Play Bigger book um, a little bit. And uh, I, for me personally, that was actually the first marketing book that I ever read. And it really, really stuck with me. 
uh, because it just it was sort of required reading at Salesforce for every marketer. And it's yeah, no, just I want to be clear book. on it. But I, I sure hope it didn't come off this way. Uh, Al Reese and Jack Trout are the OGs of all of this category stuff. All of it. I'm not confused about that at all. And I, like you, you know, Ogilvy on advertising was a huge one. But make no mistake, I read all the recent Trout books. Those guys are legendary. They are, they are the masters. Um, th there's a couple things that happened over time that I think were hugely unfortunate. But that's neither here nor there. Because I think positioning got fucked up. It had nothing to do with recent Trout. But there were... They are the giants whose shoulders I, you know, aspire to stand on, and I couldn't agree with you more. Positioning, twenty-two immutable laws, marketing warfare, um, all of those books. They even, they even wrote a. It's out of print, but you can still get it. A legendary career book, where they take their positioning and marketing and ideas and apply it to your career, and it's called Horse Sense, and it's one of the two or three best career books I ever read. No, those guys are the shit. Okay, that's great. No, I agree. I know you did say that, but I agree. I actually yeah, I haven't heard about find that Find a book. copy of Horse Sense. It's very insightful. I recommend it to, you know, anybody who's thinking about a career change or that kind of stuff, dig out a copy of Horse Sense. It's fantastic. I will do that. What other books well, have you read that you man, love? Of course, uh, Crossing the Chasm. You know, I think Jeffrey Moore's contribution to strategy, to marketing, and to our the tech industry is is undeniable. And uh, he, I put him in that kind of category for me, a, a person whose shoulders I aspire to stand on and and um, and admire. Uh, David Ogilvy for me is the man uh, because his marketing and advertising ideas but also just the way he conducted himself, you know, the, the swagger in his books and in his work. And, and so even more than advertising or marketing, he sort of, he taught me like it was, it, he was the guy who, who showed me it was cool to be in business and cool to be in advertising and marketing. I'm like, that's a cool guy. That's like a, that dude's like James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the, the whole Mad Men era. George I, Lois, still miss you know, that show. he was like that. that. So true. Um, very, very cool. So I, I like those those um, those old school guys for sure. There's a lot of new guys who are really great. I mean, there's a lot of really new guys who, you know, I think David Gerhardt at Drift is on fire, and I think what they're doing, uh, you know, uh, conversational marketing, I think in the enterprise space is is pretty exciting. I love that. You know, so I like to see those guys. Um, Very exciting. We had this market, this young marketing genius, Ryan Dyson, recently on my marketing podcast. And he's got some, you know, brilliant ideas. Uh, Sangram Badgery is, you know, you know, so there's a whole bunch of these new dudes coming up. And I, I, I you know, I love learning from them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. You know, it's funny. I always say the best writers, best copywriters for marketing teams are formerly folks in the advertising space, like folks who worked at great ad firms, because they know how to write really good pithy copy, especially in the enterprise, right? I mean, enterprise marketing can be so dull. So if you can find a great ad copywriter, okay. steal them. So I'm just going to tell you, Cole Schaefer, uh, honeycopy.com. First of all, honeycopy.com. Okay. Cole Schaefer, 
I don't know exactly how old Cole is, 25, 27, 20 something. This guy blows my mind. Yeah, and his newsletter is uh, check it off out. the charts great. Every, every one is amazing. Yeah, he's the best and most distinguished, uh, differentiated, uh, legendary young copywriter I've seen in a long time. Blows me away. And so um, uh, we've had him do a bunch of stuff, including rewrite the website. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no yeah. way. Okay, helping. great. There's a couple of evil plans that we're working on right now that I don't want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, Cole Schaefer. <laughs> I'm 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 a true sucker for good good copy, right? Uh, that really grabs you that isn't confusing. I always say humans don't like to be confused. And I'll say it over and over again. And folks will kind of say, duh, but no, really, it's such a simple, simple concept. But we get so stuck in the curse of knowledge and just getting into features and functions and bits and bytes that we forget to really Yeah, and the mastery of, of the written word. Uh, it's incredible mm -hmm. when you see mm -hmm. it. Yeah, so check out my new buddy, Cole. I will. All right, Viv, anything will. else? Well, this has been fun. No, thank you. This has been great. It's really good this to has reconnect. been really great. It's been fun catching up. It's been many years, it but it's good long, to reconnect. Yes. But it's funny, it, it doesn't feel like any long. time has passed. It, isn't that weird? Is that I a good thing or a bad thing? thing? <laughs> I think if you can pick up with somebody. Yeah. and I mean, how long do you think it's been? I don't know. A few years. It's yeah, probably been four or five years at least. So, at least. But see, when you don't even know, you and I didn't even need to get really warmed up. <laughs> no. I knew what you were gonna. I knew how you. I knew what you were gonna say, and I didn't know what you were going to ask. But I, I did ask for you to go easy on me, which I think you did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Anyway, it's great to see <laughs> that's you. That's awesome. Um, I'm. I, I got to tell you, I'm stoked for your career. Um, great to see the things that you've done. Thank you. Now that you're in venture. It's, it's been a cool fun. Transition. It is a cool transition. I, it's it, it requires a lot of patience with these with these founders because you you talk to all of them and I really do mean it. It makes me sad when they'll just say, "Oh, my product will sell itself." So I keep trying to figure out how do we change that so they just they stop second guessing how important this is. It's funny. I don't know if you knew this, but I advised Palantir for about a year, and they wouldn't even call their marketing team the marketing team. They called it the identity team because it was such a dirty word there. Granted, they sell to the government. It's a different business, right? But I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, well, there's some of us who think that marketing is a noble and legendary pursuit. Agreed, it is. Yes. It is not for the faint of heart. You have well, to really man, love I've it. I've really loved having this conversation with you. And I've loved that we uh, uh, got back in touch. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks, Christopher. All right. Bye. There she is, my dear friend, Viviana Fega. And uh, if you know anybody in the startup world, founders, marketers, who you think would benefit from this conversation, uh, we would love it if you shared uh, this conversation with them right now. Now, are you building a high growth company? If you are, you need a platform for growth that can take you from an idea to the IPO and beyond. And that's where my friends at NetSuite from Oracle come in. You see, NetSuite 
is a category king. They pioneered the cloud computing revolution for uh, accounting and what most people call ERP. And today, they're the number one provider of financials and ERP for high growth companies because they've established a company that is dedicated to delivering you an integrated suite of all of the critical capabilities you need to build your business. As a matter of fact, more than 16,000 companies in 200 companies and territories run NetSuite because NetSuite is the platform of gro for growth. And um, they're inviting you to go to netsuite.com slash different. And there you'll be able to set up a free one-hour growth review with an industry expert who can help you uh, think about, talk about, and brainstorm about ideas and opportunities for the growth of your business. So check out netsuite.com slash different today. All right. We would like to thank the good folks at onelifefullylive.org. Check them out. This is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. That's onelifefullylive.org. Uh, Emergence Capital. This is a, a boutique uh, venture capital firm where VivWorks focused on uh, building legendary B2B companies. Check them out today as well if you're an entrepreneur in that world. <laughs> um, and uh, let's see, Bottleneck Virtual Assistance. Is it, time to is it time to scale yourself? Why not leverage the power of a virtual assistant? Check out bottleneck.online today. That's bottleneck.online. And if you're looking for uh, legendary uh, ideas about marketing, why not check out my new marketing podcast called Lockhead on Marketing. That's L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D on Marketing. Um, this podcast is very different than Follow Your Different. It's focused on strategies and mindsets for winning. We talk a lot about ideas around designing and dominating categories. And each episode is pretty short. Most are under 15 to 20 minutes. And they're focused, I know that's hard to believe, focused on one topic. Check out Lockhead on Marketing, wherever you get legendary podcasts. All right, this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that clearly this oddcast is created a studio that does contain nuts. Remember to teach kids how to start companies and how to do legendary marketing. Uh, don't forget about John's crazy socks. Listen to Tom Waits. Don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Remember, it is illegal in most states in this country to go slow on the highway. Pull over and let us pass. <laughs> Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Richard C. Kelly, chairman of PG&E. Sorry, Dick. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much for the gift of your time. Uh, it really means the world to me that you want to hang out. And until we're together again, stay legendary. And of course, follow your difference.